Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Karen Paget, a physical therapist, and I'm part of the podcast team of the DDC. I'm excited to be here today with two physicians from Mass General Hospital. We will be talking about having serious illness conversations with patients, and we will be talking with Jacqueline Shamaglas. She's an attending physician in the inpatient palliative care team at MGH. And Jackie, I'm just going to give you a minute to kind of introduce yourself and tell our listeners about your day-to-day workload. Thanks, Parm, Sarah, for having us here today. We're so excited. I am an um, inpatient attending on the palliative care service. That means that I see entirely inpatient in hospital palliative care consults with my colleagues providing palliative care um, during patients' inpatient hospitalizations. I have an internal medicine background, so I did my internal medicine residency down at Brown in Providence, and I came up to Mass General for a palliative care fellowship with my colleague, Alexis, who will introduce herself momentarily. Uh, just a couple of years ago, we we graduated in the spring of COVID of uh, 2020 um, and then stayed on and have been with Mass General and this department since that time. Great. Thank you. And you mentioned Alexis, and we're excited to have her with you um, here today. So Alexis Dretches is also an attending physician in the inpatient palliative care team at Mass General Hospital. And um, Alexis, I'll give you a minute to introduce yourself. Okay, thanks everyone. Yeah, I'm Alexis. I am also an inpatient palliative care attending here. So both Jackie and I work with, um, with patients with serious illness for all different reasons. On the inpatient side, we help with symptom management, either symptoms of people's illness or the treatment of illnesses. We also help with the more, you know, emotional, psychosocial side effects of illness, you know, anxiety, existential distress, and then also overall decision-making, um, which we'll get to much more today about what's most important to people and how are they thinking about their care, looking ahead and the decisions they're making. Before this, I trained in family medicine at Brown um, and then worked for many years at Fenway Health and LGBTQ Health. So a lot of my thinking kind of comes through that lens as a primary care doctor and thinking about health equity for, you know, historically marginalized patients. So I I do work with a health equity curriculum for the fellowship here, along with the work I do with Jackie for Continuum. And I, I love to do a lot of writing sort of in my academic weeks off service, thinking about our patient stories, um, what matters to us as clinicians and as our own people. You know, we're all family members. We're all we're all sisters, partners, et cetera. And there, there's a way that our work impacts that too. So right. that's that's me in a bucket. Great. Thank you. So as we delve into this topic, can you just give us an overview of serious illness conversations? Just kind of a big, broad picture of what that looks like. So we know the serious illness conversation guide came out of Ariadne um, and a lot of research was done 
thinking about how to how to build a framework for serious illness communication. And the guide really came out of that. And Atul Gawande started Ariadne Labs, which is across town, I think, affiliated with Brigham. Um, and the serious illness guide initially was researched through oncology, looking at if oncologists were trained in this skill set, could they have earlier more often, more frequent conversations with patients about really what, what matters most. Um, and that's where the, the guide came out of. So we are by no means authors of that of that work. It goes way upstream of us. Um, and I think as part of a larger movement within medicine to have serious illness communication be something that people have more training on and more of a framework to do to take some of that activation energy off. So we we help teach it, and we certainly have a lot of mentors who were some of the people that I think helped to guide some of the early editions and evolution of that work. But we are more, you know, sitting on their shoulders at this point. So, and the other thing about the guide, you know, when I saw it, and I was like, "Ooh, the guide! It's going to be like a twenty-page document," but it's like one page, <laughs> which I love. I'm like, I love this thing. Because um, it, it really is user-friendly and something you can wrap your head around. And fun fact, it doesn't take that long to get through. I mean, mm -hmm. it, you can truly have a conversation with a patient in 15 or 20 minutes. Um, not that you always need to go through every part of it. Not that you always go through it in the same way, particularly as you get more skilled and comfortable with it. But it, it, it helps move things along and it, it doesn't take as much time as everyone thinks it does. There's also multiple different types of frameworks that you could use. The Serious Illness Conversation Guide is one. Others that come to mind are SPIKES or REMAP. There's all these acronyms for ways to organize these conversations. In general, the things that are consistent across them, you know, pick your favorite, are four elements to it. So most of them include, you know, assessing understanding, sharing information, understanding patients' goals and values and then making a recommendation and formatting those four things in various ways to make them easy for clinicians to remember to do that work with their patients and their families. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Alexis and I both feel very passionately that serious illness conversations should be happening frequently across disciplines, across professional trainings that the door should be more open than closed to engaging in these kinds of conversations, that the framework should be more flexible than not. And so we, as physician-trained providers, have that lens, but take with us into our work with Continuum um, and with some of our other education-based work that we both do, a strong feeling that all providers should have some primary palliative of care skills in order to engage in these conversations with patients because patients and families interact with a broken healthcare system, I think mm -hmm. a very fractionated healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And the downside of that is all the complications that can come from it. But the benefits is that there's a lot of touch points that I think we're not taking full advantage of. So what I'm hearing is that these serious illness conversations need to happen early and often and you know, those of us who come in touch with patients in the healthcare system need to be open to and supporting these kinds of conversations with our patients so that we serve our patients the best that we can. So what kind of patients are we talking about? I mean, are you having these conversations with patients that are 
just near the end of their life or at um, different stages? Because we're often dealing with people with degenerative diseases. Some of them will have a long time still to live, um, but that doesn't mean that that they're not facing a serious illness and a serious future, right? For, for me, the way I conceptualize it is that you know, millions of people have serious illnesses, and that doesn't mean that they're, um, you know, they're terminally ill right now, but it means that they will be on a trajectory of being offered different medical care over time and different interventions, and that there will be some sort of loss of, of function over time too, right? And so I think what you're saying, Parm, is really true. Just because you're diagnosed with an illness doesn't mean you're dying now. But I think the beauty and the importance of these conversations is really starting to honor that who our patients are, what their goals and values are, what their priorities are, that these things matter. And there's a way in which we get like on this medical wheel of like the next treatment, the next visit, the next treatment. And unless we really pause to say, what is my quality of life like? What matters to me? What can I expect my life is going to be like months or years from now? And how will the way I make decisions change once I know that? I think all of those are really important. And so serious illness conversation, serious illness communication, I think is a really important way to step back for a minute from this like churning cycle and say, you know, who are you as a person? What matters to you? Um, and how do we help guide your decision-making based on what we know your goals and values are? That's really the crux of it. So for me, um, really, I think Jackie and I could both preach that these conversations should be happening happening earlier and more often. And the research out of Ariadne does show that you know patients who do have these conversations earlier have less anxiety, less less depression, less less stress, um, and have have more goal concordant care early on. Mm -hmm. So so there's a lot of fear in having them and a lot of benefit. Um, so I think they should be happening earlier and often. They're certainly not. And, you know, I think there's data to show that most patients are having them something like 30 days before the end of life. The, the research really shows that people aren't having them early and often enough. Yeah. Um, okay. And Jackie, do you have something to add there? I think it's important to do our best to try to define serious illness, because what I hear is also, what is it? Mm -hmm. And so making up a definition on the fly, to me, it feels like a diagnosis that is life-changing in a significant way. Mm -hmm. That life-changing piece can look like multiple different things for patients and families. We are trained to classically think in terms of time and longevity. But to your point, Parm, and to what Alexis was also touching on, there's a lot about quality and functionality that um, is almost, it, it's certainly just as important, if not more so, to patients and families. And so serious illness does not need to be always life-threatening, right. but it is definitely life-changing, and our goals are to have conversations around that. Yeah, I, and I think the other thing it really does for our patients is it prepares them for what's coming. And, you know, I recently had a patient say to me, you know, patient with a degenerative disease say to me, I'm not getting better, I'm getting worse. Like I'm doing all these things and taking medication and I'm doing everything right and I'm still getting worse. And I was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you have a degenerative disease and like, how, like this 
shouldn't be news at this point. It's been many years. And so why aren't these conversations happening? And, um, you know, and I think that we, and, you know, as rehab professionals, like we're trying to give people hope and bolster them. And, and I think sometimes when we know that there's degeneration coming and we're really there to, to try to stave it off for as long as possible, but eventually it's going to catch up to you. And, and with, you know, for not having that conversation, I think it's really, really tricky. So that gives us a little bit, but can you talk more specifically about like the kinds of diagnoses that you're talking to people about? I will say that we, at least here at Mass General Hospital, have a pretty open service, meaning that we see a variety of illnesses across the board, and we are geared towards providing good palliative care to all of those different patients and families with with a variety of diagnoses. Um, I think I, I will clarify that, you know, hospice care is kind of that end of life, six to you know, six months or less type of care. It's a philosophy of care. It's an insurance benefit. Um, palliative care providers help with hospice, but we also do this much larger work of just addressing serious illness at any point in time. We, we do see patients with neurodegenerative and other, you know, neurologically debilitating diseases frequently. I'll, I'll add there. I think, I think the question of who do we have this with? I think the, the global answer should be that we all should be having these conversations and we need to normalize the fact that at some point we all will get a diagnosis of something critical. You know, at some point we all are going to look at our lives and wonder, did I focus on the things that matter most to me? Right. And I think that at baseline palliative care in a way is radical in that it is within medicine and also says at some point we're all going to die. Right. I think medicine, to go back to your point, Parm, is like based on optimism and hope. And that's how incredible medical innovations have come up. Like look at the COVID vaccine. Right. Look at being able to intubate and like um, put people in, in different positions to oxygenate, to oxygenate their lungs. Like all of that is incredible and is important. But this ongoing ethos of like aggressive interventional life-sustaining care is, I think, very harmful in that it doesn't honor the fact that at some point our quality of life isn't allowing us to live in the way that's acceptable to us. And if we're not telling our healthcare providers and who we love what quality means to us, what do we value upstream, we all then are at risk for getting caught in that in that cycle of not being able to prioritize what's most important to us. And that doesn't mean only when life is so short, right? I think there's a way in which if we start mm -hmm. to normalize these conversations early and really think about what is important to me, what are my goals and values, and serious illness conversation is our way to get there in the inpatient setting. But most of our patients are much more ill. They're, they're hospitalized because they're very sick with whatever illness that is, um, which is different than, than maybe where where you could be having conversations with individuals, you know, in neuroclinic at, at a rehab facility. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if it makes sense, Parm, and if it would be helpful for us to go through the guide in a way that might resonate with your listeners or providers um, with patients with neurodegenerative disease in mind, only because yeah. we're talking about it kind of in the theoretical, but there is like a, 
there's some tips and tricks embedded if that's useful. I think so. Let's just tackle it. Why not? So we, you know, we always kind of open our our teachings about it by setting the stage. We want to make sure that it's the right time for a patient and family to engage in a conversation. Um, you know, we if it's not the right time, then it's not going to be as productive a conversation. And so giving the patient the opportunity to say, yes, I, I'd like to talk about what lies ahead. I'd like to talk about the big picture. Sure, I'm okay with, with that. And using, you know, questions and asking permission to do so. Um, I think asking permission is a high yield tool that I did not realize was as important and as useful as I do now. Um, it took me going through palliative care fellowship to really truly understand that, but asking permission is golden. It gives patients the autonomy back in an otherwise uncontrollable situation. Um, it puts people at ease and it also kind of can be, you know, associated with a warning shot. Like we need to talk about something serious. Are you okay with that? So we always start the conversation by opening up that setting, ensuring that it's the right time, that the right people are there, and and using permission statements to do that. The, the next part of the guide, and, and again, this is just for listeners who are not seeing it. This is a paper guide. And for at least our fellows and our, our trainees, we talk about the fact that you could bring this into the room with you and that research has really shown that patients are not bothered by the fact that our learners say, I have this guide I'm going to go through. I don't want to miss anything. Is it okay if I'm using this? And I think as you get more used to this, it becomes it becomes like a second nature communication skill and you just have the questions in mind. But I think it's super helpful to know that this is a guide that can be printed out and it's um totally normal and I think um, reasonable at the beginning to, to bring it with you. So the, so the second part, which is in bold, is assessing um, patients' prognostic awareness or understanding. So I, I usually, you know, say something like, can you tell me what your team has shared with you about your health right now or about what brought you to the hospital? You know, can you tell us about what you understand? There's all different ways, I think, that you can ask that, but it's truly getting at what do our patients understand of their illness right now. And then the exploration part of that more is, you know, is there anything that you need to to correct there? Is their understanding um, very different than, than, the, than the reality of the situation? Is there something to correct if you're able to? Or is that something to bring back to their primary team and say, geez, you know, it really seems like Mr. Smith, you know, doesn't have a great sense of what's going on. And then in talking to the teams, we can see, is that because it hasn't been shared? Is that because he's in denial? Is that because he wishes it was different? Is that because he wants his partner there and doesn't want to talk about this, right? It can be diagnostic in a certain way. Moving on in terms of assessment then is getting into hopes and worries. So, you know, given given where you're at with your health right now, um, what are you hoping for? Um, What are you worried about? Embedded within those is the idea that we are coming at this with curiosity and without an agenda. So we use statements like, tell me more or, and what else to really allow our patients to get into the the core of what they're trying to say. If someone says, I'm hoping to go home, you know, that's not really the place to, to stop. I think then we pause and say, you know, tell me more about that or, and what else are you hoping for? Um, and then the same for worries holds true there too. The assessing prognostic understanding in the guide is, you know, just a couple of sentences, but I could imagine that, you know, with you and your colleagues in the physical therapy 
arena in the outpatient world that some of those questions might come in the forms of, you know, what does a good day look like or what makes a good day? How are you spending your days? What does independent mean to you? How does it make you feel when you need to ask for help? And so all of that digging and information gathering can kind of falls underneath this this um, heading. Um, and, and we'll share that, you know, the hopes and worries piece, people oftentimes don't share their most intimate hopes and worries up front. You have mm-hmm. to dig for those. And the goal is truly also to under to get at the root of their understanding, which often becomes more apparent when you dig at their most inner hopes and worries. You know, gosh, I, I'm hoping that I I will get stronger and then I can walk again. Well, I'm 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 hoping that I can at least get home because I don't want to be in this facility. Well, I'm I'm hoping that I you know I'm not a burden for my family anymore because being in this rehab is making me feel like I'm a burden Um, or, you know, the hopes and worries blur sometimes. Um, But if you keep asking and can get at the root of, of what's going on in somebody's mind, we oftentimes end up finding that our own worries are aligning with theirs. And then we can use their language to reflect, you know, back what we're hearing in a way that really truly keeps alignment and feels less like I'm the medical provider and I'm telling you something and more like, yeah, we're, we're all in this together. Um, and, and we're going to share both in the hopes, but we're also going to share in the worries and we're not going to abandon you in that. We're going to do our best to get you through in whatever way that we can. Mm-hmm. And then just to, just to add there, the, the next part is sharing sort of a prognostic statement, which we often think about as time. Um, but I think really what patients are most worried about, as you said, is, is their function. Will I be able to walk? Will I be able to eat? Will I get home again? Will I be able to camp again? I just had a patient who's like, will I be able to fish again on my boat? Right. So these are the things that get back to quality of life and what really matters. And we use those hopes and worries to share our own sort of prognostic statement. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hearing you really want to get home and, um, and that you're really worried about being a burden to your family and having to use, you know, a walker and move to the first floor. And, you know, I'm also worried that in the next weeks or months, you might be looking at living on that first floor. You know, so it's it's kind of, I'm, that's just an example here, but it's sort of using the hopes and worries to um, make a prognostic statement for them. And then, and then the important part there is allowing for silence and responding to the emotion that comes up. You can't jump forward there after you've shared that prognostic word. You really need to allow space to to align with our patients to really be in that moment with them. Um, and sometimes if that's as far as you get, I think with the work that you're building over time, that's that's a lot of work done. I think that's really good work done. And that's a great place to start. Yeah, I just I just want to bring attention to one thing you said, though, Alexis, you talked about the silence. And I think it takes clinicians a while to be comfortable with the silence, but I I also feel like it's very respectful thing to do. And so what I notice, like when I'm teaching, a lot of times, you know, if I'm modeling for a student or a newer clinician, they I can tell they get they're getting a little antsy and uncomfortable with how much I'm not talking. And then, you know, in our conversation afterward, you know, I'll bring it up like, did you notice that I really didn't say a lot? I really wanted to hear from the patient. And if I don't 
give them that space, then they don't often don't bubble up, but they eventually they will say something. And, and so, you know, it's just something that I've kind of learned over time, but I think it's, it's key. And so I love that you said that. So thank you. It's so hard to hold silence. It's so tough. Yeah. Um, And I think we're trained to share information as part of the way that we care for people. Educational information sharing is provider's way of saying, you know, I care about you. I love you. I want you to be okay. I want to fix this. Um, And so when we, when we have to sit in our own emotion and if we feel sadness or grief or stress or anxiety and we're sitting in that and we're feeling that in the silence, I think it's just a way that people tend to try to respond to show that they care, but it it doesn't hit that way. It makes people feel Mm -hmm. like they don't have the space and the time to process, um, which is why it's so important that we change the paradigm of medical education broadly and include responding to emotion as important clinical work. Um, And I don't think we think about that enough. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so let's see, where are we in the guide? Um, I wanted to to share kind of that next part of the guide that allows for that silence is an aligned statement, which which the the teaching of the guide is to say, I wish we didn't have to worry about this. I think these need to be authentic. I think we can't just look at patients and say, you know, that must be frustrating, or I can imagine this is hard, or I wish we didn't have to worry. I think we all do this work because we we deeply care about our patients, and I think it's important to make these statements our own. And just to to be sure that they come from an authentic place, because I think patients can feel when it's inauthentic and when we're just sort of going through the motions. But but what's next in the guide after sharing the worry is is an aligned statement such as, I wish we didn't have to worry about this. And then again, I think pausing mm-hmm. to allow, allow our patients to respond there. Um, the, the next part after that is exploring what's important which really the bulk of it is thinking about, you know, given, given what was just shared, what's important to you now, or give, you know, if your health situation worsens, what would be most important to you? Or, you know, given that time is short, what's most important to you? So it's really, it's really digging a little bit deeper into their priorities um, once you're sort of at a different place with your patients. Yeah. And I think those are the kinds of conversations that we're actually kind of used to having is like, what's the most important thing for you? But I like that framing it in that way of if things were to get worse or as things progress, just so that we can start, you know, preparing or trying to push that off if possible. I could see that playing out in specifics with, for example, patients with ALS, as they're losing ability to speak or communicate or breathe, thinking about, you know, now we're at this place in your disease, what's most important? Is that finding ways to continue to make that communication happen? Or is that now impacting quality of life to such a degree that we need to take a step back and think about big picture? Um, Think about what makes quality of life now that life is more debilitated or limited. I I could see how this could play out with your patient population, you know, critically and all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think having these conversations earlier and more often gets people thinking about what's most important to me and knowing that I'm going to get worse in the future. How do I live 
with intention as much as possible, knowing it's, you know, it's a privilege to be able to live with that kind of intention. And right. So there are ways in which if we can think about these things earlier that we might make different choices um, because we're thinking about what's most important and what the future might hold. Um, then the next part after that, and really the last part of the guide is making a recommendation. And that's that's really, I think what's important there is many individuals worry that um, they might not have the skill set to make a recommendation or that a recommendation needs to be something therapeutic or treatment related. And it doesn't necessarily have to be. I think it's really important to know that um, we all make recommendations based on where our expertise um, are from, right? And so there's so many ways that you might be able to make a, rec a recommendation about, you know, adaptations to maximize their mobility, about home support services, about frequency of therapy, or maybe about sharing what you've talked about with their family. That's another huge one. You know, often we want to shield our family members from these worries. Um, and sometimes what's most important is to share about this conversation with their other medical teams or their families. So I think, you know, we, Jackie and I really want to emphasize that recommendations should lean on where our expertise are. And we think that, you know, rehab professionals have such an incredible skill set and continuity over time to be able to, to make, make recommendations based on what you're seeing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I also think that that, you know, sometimes things that bubble up are things that are outside of our scope of practice or our realm. And that that's when it's important to circle back to whoever it is um, that is able to help with that. And, you know, for us to have the kind of support wherewithal and time to do that, which we all run into, right? Um, but that is certainly important. And I think the more you do that, the quicker and easier it is. And I think also our, our health records, I mean, particularly if you're in a larger system, you know, different kinds of messaging options and whatever are making that easier. Um, but still, if you're in a smaller system, then that, that stuff, I think, is still gets tricky, um, but is an important piece to have that continuity and that sort of wraparound care. One of the ways that we have found, you know, that making recommendations um, can be laid out, I think, particularly in terms of, you know, functional prognosis, or if there is great uncertainty with what the future might hold, is discussing kind of a best case, worst case, most likely scenario. So, you know, the worst case scenario might be X, best case is, is we get you home and, you know, 100% recovered back to your baseline. Worst case is you're really, you know, quite functionally debilitated. You're wheelchair bound. We're not going to be able to get you easily home without many, many months of rehab. And then the most likely, well, like where do we think as providers that falls? So sometimes that's a useful way to kind of share, you know, a gist or um, a concern about what the future might bring, even if it's uncertain, um, either with a prognosis related to time or functionality. Um, but it, it is important that we are sharing what we know from our training. Um, I think in this mm -hmm. healthcare system that has prioritized, you know, quote unquote, patient-centered care, there's a little bit of a sense that that means that patients and families pick from many options and that they have this silver platter from which to you know, go through as if it's a takeout menu. Um, and the problem with that is that they are not also given all of the training and background and kind of future-oriented, 
likelihoods that come along with those options. Um, and so we do our patients and families a disservice if we don't also provide guidance from that menu of options about what a particular path might look like. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the conversations or the kinds of things that we are facing is like a decline in function, right? Because we're there to help people be functionally mobile and participate in their life. And as that starts to decline, a lot of times that's when we get pulled in. And then we have to have that conversation of like, well, maybe it's not safe to walk anymore and we need to introduce an assistive device or a wheelchair. Um, and, you know, per, I personally like, and particularly for somebody who's resistant to that kind of intervention, it's really hard to, to kind of broach that and have that conversation and to have it in an effective way and not kind of turn them off even more. Do you have any like sort of advice or examples for that kind of a patient? I think again, the the guide is a really great place to fall back on to start these conversations because you're right there. They're tricky, they're tricky topics. They're emotionally heavy. Um, we don't want to face the fact that we're losing um, like a critical function in our lives. And I think there's a way in which the guide helps us through through that, you know, asking what a patient hopes for. I, I hope to be able to get home and walk on my own. Well, what are you worried about? You know, that one day I'm not going to be able to and my, my daughter's going to need to help me get to the bathroom, you know. And then there's a lot of work in responding to emotion within within the guide and reflecting back to patients is another sort of really key skill set. Um, embedded within this. And so as just to use that simple example, you could reflect back, you know, I'm really hearing you're hoping to be independent and mobile again, and you're really worried that you're going to need help from your family. And, you know, can I share, you know, in the time I've, I've gotten to know you, I'm really worried about that too. Like there's a, there's a way in which it sort of helps you reflect back to them. Um, and we also could talk a little bit more about, you know, responding to the emotion of that no one does well with just getting right to the prognostic share, right? I think in a very authentic way, we have to be with our patients and name um, how hard this is for them, how much loss they've had, how much courage they've had. There's different acronyms we can talk about. I'm not a great acronym person, but there's an acronym called NURSE, um, which is another great thing for listeners to, to Google, um, which is a way in which to think about responding to patients' emotions, um, you know, sh mm -hmm. like naming their emotion, um, sharing an understanding or acknowledgement of their emotion, showing respect or praise for them, um, using kind of support statements to show your support and commitment to them, and then exploring their emotions. So that's that's nurse. I, I'm only bringing it up to say that I think this guide can really walk walk us through how to enter into hard conversations and how to respond authentically to our patients. Um, and again, the goal is to build on it over time. Your job is not to convince that patient at that very moment that they need a walker and have them get on board. But the goal is to sort of build upon it over time. And then our goal, right, is to be able to use that work. And if they end up in the ED and we're seeing them in the ideal world, we then can build upon your work. So there's a way in which there's a lot of um, like symbiotic um, nature to this, if we're able to do this across across places connected with a, a larger healthcare system. Totally, I 100% agree. Um, but I think I think that this 
guide certainly helps to provide a framework to start having those conversations and delivering that important information. And, you know, I love this sort of multidisciplinary approach of everyone who is interacting with patients, sort of using the same um, language framework and um, communicating so that you can really kind of work together as a team. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the kind of nitty gritty of how you train healthcare professionals to have these conversations. So what does the um, training that you provide, what does it look like? So uh, um, our particular training is for is for individuals, you know, affiliated, connected with MGH. And our mm-hmm. trainings are, are two hours. We do a didactic for, you know, 55 minutes or so at the beginning where Jackie is saying we really go through and break down the serious illness conversation guide, which for um, listeners out there, if you Google serious illness conversation guide PDF, you can see different versions of it. And as Jackie said, it has um, very similar different like concepts that you always go through in this. And so we spend that first hour to talk about the background. Where does this guide come from? What are the parts of the guide? Why, how, like, why are they there? How do we use them? What's some of the research about the guide? And we we role model it together with an actor, usually one of us does. And then we break off into small groups and there's a facilitator who um, is a palliative care clinician from all different backgrounds, like social work, NPs, um, chaplains, MDs. And there's a, and then there was usually three or four individuals from, um, from all different specialties, subspecialties that we're training. And they have that hour to to practice with um with a trained actor and um and then get feedback from the group about about how it went for them. That's our particular training. Um, for example, Brigham Across Town does the training a little differently. There's all different types of organizations that do this work. Mm-hmm. So if you know, so it, every training is not like that. That's how Jackie and I have um kind of in in our leadership role have been um, overseeing the trainings at MGH. Mm-hmm. And what kind of feedback do you get from the people who participate in the training? We so far have heard very, I think, overarchingly good things that it's empowering, which is our goal, that it provides um, high yield kind of tips and tricks for engaging in this kind of conversation work with patients. The guide is built to be a crutch or a scaffold to have these conversations. So it's really there to try to um, help providers maximize the skills that they come at this with from prior, to feel more comfortable engaging in a conversation, to have an organizational format in front of them that makes it easier to sit down and have a more intense conversation with a patient. And also acknowledging that most providers already are doing this work. We just don't know what to call it. Yeah. And so the feedback's positive, but it's an area also in which um, Alexis and I and our team are looking at trying to study more specifics on. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the part that like I'd be most curious about is, you know, if I were to take this training, is that going to affect the way that I go to work tomorrow and and talk to my next patient? You know, Um, I hope so. I would hope that it would. And if nothing else, I think the more exposure people get to this. And like you said, the more we understand that there's support from the entire institution and our colleagues are starting to do it. And, they, and you can be talking to each other about, oh my gosh, I had this person so hard and 
you know, I don't know what to say. And, you know, at least if kind of everybody is getting that same training, then they can work together within their groups to try to um, promote those conversations. So it would be great to, to collect some kind of data, even if it's, you know, qualitative. It'd be interesting. I think to, to add to that a bit, um, I, I think it, you know, Jackie and I really try to name the barriers that people have for this. And I do think that that, you know, I hope that plants the seed because I think there's that idea of taking away hope, of not having enough time, of not having enough information. And we try to name all of those. Mm-hmm. And I do think there's a way in which the ripple effects of that is someone might might come into work and think, okay, I actually see that these can only take 15 minutes. Maybe this is something I try today with this patient. Um, we also talk about the fact that you don't have to go through the entire guide for it to be meaningful. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you only get through the first part, which is assessing someone's understanding talking about their hopes and worries and sharing a prognostic worry. That can be a huge gain there. And you can document that. And we sort of flatten the hierarchy and know that each of us should do this work and can do this work. And we can then build upon Mm -hmm. each other's work. There's a way in which um, that is extremely helpful, I think, for patients to build the conversation over time. So so I'm hopeful that um, in those like smaller ways that the training can can have impact over time too. Yeah. And the beauty for us as rehab professionals is that we are typically in an outpatient setting, seeing somebody multiple times over, you know, weeks. And so we're developing the kind of relationship with our patients that, you know, is kind of unique and unfortunately rare in our um, healthcare setting, but does really kind of allow for a good alliance and um, relationship building, which I think helps. I mean, I know that personally for me, I'm so impressed with you guys that you can like walk in and start having this conversation with somebody like right off the bat. It generally takes me a little bit of time to kind of feel like I'm gaining their trust enough to, to start broaching that material. And also it's just a small portion of what we're doing, right? But I think for a lot of us, if we can kind of use this framework, I'd love it to help with goal setting. I think it can be huge because we want to set, you know, we want goals that are, are meaningful for our patients. We want them involved in that conversation of what are we really doing here? What are we working towards? And, you know, and, and I think that having this framework could really help with those conversations. I, I think, Parm, that your work as a physical therapist and your colleagues' work as in physical therapy is in such a important and um, you you have such an intimate view into what is most debilitating and and impactful for your patients and their families. And like you said, there's you have the tincture of time to develop closeness with them and truly understand through, I think, incredible rapport building, what is most important. We have to do that work in the hospital as inpatient palliative care attendings in maybe more acute or urgent settings because that's the situation that we're in. But the goal Mm -hmm. is that these conversations happen early and often with people of significant trust 
who have glimpses into what's most important and and where most of the worry is coming from. And so I think physical therapists in that way, particularly in the outpatient setting, are primed for that. And so we are so mm-hmm. excited to be you know, asked to talk about this work because our goal is really we, we need to change the healthcare system so that everybody feels empowered to 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 do it, to engage in these conversations and to look to our colleagues for information about this. Great. Well, thank you both. We are definitely going to encourage our listeners to go and uh, check out the guide and people can Google it, as you said, but we'll also put a link in our show notes to one of those PDFs. Um, And so before we wrap up our conversation here, we do like to ask people um, about what they do when they're not working and um, just for something a little bit fun. And so, Alexis, let's start with you. What do you like to do when you're not working? My life is a little bit different now. My my wife and I have a three-month-old at home, so my time is spent um, hanging out with him and taking lots of walks and being outside as much as possible. Um, that That is what I love to do. I'd, I'd love to hike and backpack and snowshoe. So, but my time is mostly spent on a play mat, um, hanging out with him or... <laughs> going on walks and hoping that that he'll nap and just watching him grow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll need to get one of those. I'm sure you have one baby backpack. Oh yeah. We have a baby. Yeah. I just can't wait for him to be big enough to use it. Fun. Great. You know, we often talk about hiking. It's a little bit of a joke here on 4D, <laughs> but it is a favorite activity of a lot of people. Uh, yours truly included. So Jackie, how about you? What do you like to do when you're not working? My partner and I also enjoy walking and hiking as true good New Englanders. Um, we, we spend a lot of time in Southern Maine and in New Hampshire and Vermont when we can. We love live music. It's so nice to be back to some kind of semblance of normalcy with live music in the city and going out to restaurants. Um, I think the biggest perk of this job is just the daily reminder of the importance of finding small joys in in the basic things of life and the basic happinesses, um, mm-hmm. which I think I just made up that word, but certainly friends and family and then being outside. Yeah, 100%. Totally agree. Well, you guys, I want to thank you both, Jackie and Alexis, for being here. And, you know, we think it's a very valuable conversation. We're so excited to bring it to our listeners. It was a joy. I think, you know, I think it's really inspiring to to talk to you and and to get the chance to meet new people who are also passionate about um, taking care of patients and sort of delving into the hard things. So thanks for your time. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Chris Burke, Ken Bonacco, Carly Haver, Jeff Schmidt, and I'm Farm Paget. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. We don't have a lot of bloopers for this one. That's going to be a problem. First of all, that baby is so cute. Holy cow. Okay, I just said Alexis, and I think the Alexa thing thought I was talking about. Yeah, I can't have one. We love tackling it. We, that's that's yeah. the reason we 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 do this work. Uh, early and often. Let's do, early and let's often. So if I take film, I'm always like, is it in there? <laughs>
Yeah, the old-fashioned cameras. I remember them well. There were so many ways to screw up. My dog starts, he starts the um, dinner campaign around 3.30. Oh, he was like shaking and muffing and now he's like climbing on me. <laughs>